Thank you, Michelle. Um, We're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 23. We're going to read through 40, though we're going to focus on the first half of this passage. We've been following Jesus as he interacts with various religious leaders who all seem to have the same agenda of trapping him, getting him to say something that will get him into trouble with the people or with the Roman authorities or questioning his theology. And uh, we're going to look at a passage in which he encounters uh, the Sadducees, uh, the priestly class, in Matthew 22 in your pew Bible. Uh, We are on page 1535, if you want to follow along in the pew Bible. Uh, Page 1535, we're looking at Matthew 22, verses 23 to 40. This is the Lord's Gospel. That same day... The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And reading ahead a little bit, uh, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law of God? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It was the question, is there life after death? It's the most profound question. It's the most basic question. It's the preeminent question. It's the question that you and I started asking as soon as you realized there was this thing called death. And today we're reading the account of Jesus' confrontation with the Sadducees. These were the priestly class in in first century Israel. They were not known particularly for their piety. They were not known for their doctrine. They were the Jews who were collaborating with the Roman occupation. They were rich. They were powerful. They were the privileged class in first century Palestine, and they did have certain doctrinal distinctives. Because they were the priestly class, they ran the temple, they were really only interested in scriptures which pertained to the temple, which meant that they only accepted as biblical the first five books of of the Jewish 
uh, 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 scriptures, the, the, the Torah, uh, you know, Exodus and Genesis and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and they rejected the word of God seen in the prophets. And as a result of that, they tended not to believe in an afterlife. Uh, it is blessing in this life and this life alone. We are allotted our four score and ten or however many years God may choose to give us. And after that, we may have great blessings. If we're righteous and they were rich, they, they would have that theology. Uh, and yet beyond, there is nothing but the grave. And there's certainly no notion of a resurrection of the dead. And in this passage, we see this priestly class trying to show Jesus what an idiot he is for believing in an afterlife and a resurrection from the dead. So what about us? When you, at some point, maybe far in the future, get stuffed into a box and buried in the ground, or when you get incinerated and you sit in an urn on some distant relative's mantle, Uh, You won't have been at your own funeral. Does consciousness continue? Does the mind continue? Does the soul have an existence? Can the soul have an existence beyond death? It's not just a relevant question for when you die. It's relevant for how you live your life right now. And Jesus gives a two-part answer to this question that the Pharisees bring. He says it's an issue of love And he says it's an issue of the power of God. First point, it's not just a relevant question for when you die. It's relevant for how you live your life right here and right now. Um, Are you ready to ask yourself whether you can really live as if death is final? As if uh, the sun eventually burns out billions of years from now and... Uh, you know, we will have just been random, meaningless blip in history. There's no true story. There's no ultimate significance. We're just a gnat that gets squashed underfoot, just a collection of atoms whizzing about in a random way that happened randomly to develop and combine in such a way that they had sentience, which is, of course, of no significance or no meaning because a trillion years from now there will be no one and nothing to know that we ever existed. We're just chemicals. Are you ready to go there? Can you live as if there is no God? As if there is no way things are supposed to be. There's no right way. There's no such thing as good. No such thing as evil. There's no ultimate meaning. And so there was nothing ultimately evil about what the Nazis did in Europe in the 1940s. There's nothing ultimately wrong about the Islamic State throwing a gay man off the top of a tall building. There's nothing wrong with slavery. There's nothing wrong with uh, the Orlando nightclub bombings. If there's no ultimate meaning to reading your child a bedtime story, there's no ultimate significance to holding the hand of a grandmother as she passes from this life. Can you live as if that is true? Can your heart live as if that's true? I've known a lot of atheists uh, in my own family and some of my closest friendships through the years, and I have never known an atheist who can live as if there really is no ultimate purpose, significance, goodness, or evil in the world. In fact, most atheists I've known have great concern for human suffering, but it's borrowed capital. It's not part of their worldview. It's something that they, as human beings made in God's image, nevertheless feel compelled and often passionate about. 
but living as if human life really were sacred, as if truth really were better than falsehood, as if love really were a universal moral norm, as if there really is ultimate meaning and purpose to this life, as if we really do have significance, as if it actually is good and right for human beings to live without suffering, and as if that's superior objectively to non-life or suffering. To live as if we do have significance, as if there really were a God who's actually behind all of this. You know, you can't live as if it's all really meaningless. Uh, I've got a photo here. Can I have that first picture? Uh, You recognize the guy on the left? Uh, That's a very, very young Stephen Hawking and his wife, first wife, Jane. Stephen Hawking's first wife, Jane, married Hawking in 1965 after meeting meeting him through his sister at a party when he was just 23 years old, a year after he was diagnosed with motor neuron disease. And though throughout 30 years of marriage, Stephen Hawking very often mocked and insulted his wife's Christian faith, their marriage nevertheless lasted for decades. And throughout, she was his primary caregiver. And when asked about her faith, married to one of the most brilliant minds and most skeptical minds in human history, here's what she had to say. She says this, However far-reaching our intellectual achievements, and however advanced our knowledge of creation, I find that without faith and a sense of our own spirituality, there's only isolation and despair, and the human race is a lost cause. Thank you. Believing in life, after death. It's not just significant for how you die. It's significant for how you live your life here and now and whether you really see ultimate significance to reading a child a bedtime story or holding on to the hand of a grandmother who dies. Second point, what's Jesus' answer to this question of whether there's life after death For Jesus, he says, it is an issue ultimately about love. And not our love so much as God's love. Did you notice where Jesus turns when he's questioned by these Sadduceical priestly class, these these ultimate religious people, even though they were known for their worldliness? They're, They're questioning him. And Jesus could have turned to all sorts of passages in the Hebrew Bible. He should have he could have turned to Isaiah 26. Where Isaiah, God speaks and says, but your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. He could have turned to Job 19. After my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. He could have turned to Daniel chapter 12. Uh, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. And some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. But Jesus doesn't turn to the prophet Isaiah. He doesn't turn to Job. He doesn't turn to Daniel Because these particular people did not accept those scriptures. 
That's not Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's not the Torah. Those are the words of the prophets. We reject those prophets. We don't receive them. We don't acknowledge them. And so where does Jesus turn? But he turns to a passage in the third chapter of Exodus from the Torah in which God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And with that one reference, Jesus silences the Sadducees. How does he silence them? He silences them first uh, uh, by pointing to details in the text. Do you notice what Jesus notices about what God said to Moses? He notices that God used the present tense. Uh, When God spoke, he he was speaking to Moses. This was centuries after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had been dead for centuries, but but, but God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob. Jesus is pointing out, no, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He's using the present tense. God is saying, at this moment, I am in a covenantal union with Abraham, and I am Isaac's God right now, but he's dead. He's alive. I'm his God right now. He uses the present tense. They weren't his former people. God isn't anybody's former God. He didn't say he used to be the God of Abraham. He is right now as we speak in the present tense. I am not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And Jesus points out something else. Notice what else Jesus noticed. He noticed that God used the present tense, but he also noticed that God got really, really possessive as a grammatical construction and as a relationship. Do you notice? I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God that belongs to Abraham. I am of him. I'm his God. He's my people. I'm the God of Jacob. I am Jacob's God. That's the kind of language that you and I typically only hear in the language of marriage. Uh, My love, you know, my wife, where Paul says the husband's body belongs to the wife. The wife's body belongs to the husband. That covenantal relationship of mutual possession where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Jesus points out this, this language here where he says, I'm the God of the living. They're alive now and I'm their God right now. It's ownership, it's possession. Uh, You're using possessive language. It speaks of uh, shared affection and intimacy and connection between you that you don't share with anyone else. One one pastor uses these terms. He says it's intimate. It's personal. It's like your two lives are tethered together. And Jesus is saying to these Sadducees, that's what I have right now with Abraham. Abraham. That's what I have right now with Isaac. That's what I have right now, right here with Jacob. As we speak, I am their God. They possess me. I possess them. You can't see them where they are, but they are alive in me right now. It's personal. It's intimate. It's real, and I love them. He even says right after this passage, when asked by by a different religious group, what's the most important thing in the Old Testament? And he says it's, It's the commandment to love God, to love neighbor, because even all the instruction in the entire Hebrew Bible boils down to love, covenant love, being his people, him being 
our God. Mutual ownership, mutual relationship, a God of the living and not of the dead. St. Paul can even say that God is love, that love wins out in the end, that love is what holds on to us even after our bodies expire. Ray Cortese says there is nothing worse than to hear a parent say, I used to have a son. I used to have a daughter. They're the worst words imaginable. We'd do anything to keep from saying those words, and God will never say those words because no relationship of God's is ever past tense. He never loses us. He's never separated from us. Nothing will ever separate you from his love, nothing in the future, not even death. It will not separate you from me, he is saying. You are never past tense when you have the love of God. Pastor tells a story of a woman who is facing the real possibility that the courts were going to award custody of her son, her only son, to her ex-husband. And this ex-husband was a despicable man. He was an abusive man. He was a controlling man. He was not a good man, and he lived in another state. And this pastor asked this woman, so what would you do if he actually gets custody? And the woman looked with fierceness in her eyes, and she said, I would uproot my family. I would quit my job. My husband would quit his job. We would move to that state, and we would sell everything we have, and we would buy a house next door to my ex-husband, and I would be there every day of my son's life because no one is ever going to take my son from me. You could see the fierceness, and yet the fierceness that that woman had for her son cannot compare to the fierceness that God has for you if you are a Christian, if you're his son, if you're his daughter. Uh, I'm not the God of the dead, he says. I am the God of the living, and they are mine, and I am theirs, and I will not abandon them, and death will not be able to take them from me. I will enter death myself. I will let it swallow me up, and I will be there with them, and I will rescue them, and I will bring them out of death with me because they are mine, and my love will not allow death to take hold of them. It's an issue of love, not our love for him, but the Father's love for you, that he is not willing to let death take hold of you for long. Jesus says it's an issue of love, but he also says it's an issue of the power of God. Jesus says you're in error because you don't know the power of God. Um current research as we think about what kind of God we're actually dealing with here. Uh, Current research suggests that both space and time had a beginning roughly 13.82 billion years ago. I'm not a scientist. I take their word for it. Um, And I used to have a mistaken assumption when I pictured sort of the Big Bang I pictured this big, empty, black void that just stretches forever and ever and has always existed. And in this big black void, there is this singularity that suddenly explodes into existence in the universe, then, you know, goes from that outward. And, and, and as I've read up on, on current research, 
Uh, the mistake was there were two things I assumed were already there at the beginning. I already assumed that there was a big black empty void that stretched forever. But the, the current theory is that that big black void itself was compressed and it did not exist. There was no space in which that could exist. And the current theory is also that it had not existed forever because time itself, at least time as we can understand it, did not exist, you know, 13.821 billion years ago. That time and the space itself came into existence almost 14 billion years ago. It did not exist, and then it existed. And there's certainly there's some, some theoreticians proposing a previous regression of, uh, of, of multiverses, previously existing universes that then collapsed and then started back again. And, and mathematically, I, I have it on very good authority, at least generally it's respected mathematically, that, that even had such a thing existed, it could not have gone back infinitely into the past. Um, I can give you the reference. It's, you could find it on Tuft's website, but... Uh, but the universe had a beginning at some point. And before that, there was nothing. Now, I want you to close your, mind, close your eyes for just a second and, and, and humor me. I want you to picture nothing in your mind. Now, what do you see? Whatever you are picturing as you're thinking about nothing, now I want you to get rid of that. Because that's something. And once you get to that, then you're getting to the notion of nothing. Jonathan Edwards said, nothing is what sleeping rocks dream of. (laughs) And then out of that, time began and space began, and it is accelerating. Uh, In fact, uh, the, the universe is expanding at an accelerated rate. It's moving faster and faster apart. And currently, there are 10 billion galaxies in the observable universe. And the number of stars in each galaxy varies, but assuming an average of about 100 billion stars per galaxy means that there are roughly 1 billion trillion stars in the observable universe. Now, the Bible says that there is an entity, an intelligence, that set all that in motion and transcends it and that is larger than all of that. Um, we're not talking about an ancient Near Eastern sky god Uh, We're talking about something the Bible describes as totally other, holy, uh, unlike us. Uh, We are not sure exactly what we're dealing with when we talk about God, except we know what he has shown himself in history, stepping into our experience to reveal himself. And the scripture says that 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 power, that intelligence, that ultimate sentience that sustains all of this second by second uh, is, is... is sustaining it in its immensity, moment by moment, maintaining it by the word of his power. And you say that he can't find a way for life to exist after a brain dies? Jesus is saying your God is way too small. You are in error, he says, because you do not know the power of God. Do you think such a being couldn't take your soul as your Think computer analogy is your hardware is winding down. My hardware has all sorts of glitches already. It's just a question of time. 50, 60 years from now, this body is not going to be around. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just not. It's going to be in a box somewhere. No, it's, it's not going to be on the urn because I don't have any descendants. Nobody's going to want the urn. It'll be in a box. Um, I think through this frequently. But um, uh, yeah, at bedtime. And, but... Uh, 
is it not conceivable that a being that maintains the vastness of the cosmos as your hardware dies down because we're fallen and we're not the way it was meant to be, everything's damaged. Could he not take your software and upload it to his cosmic server called heaven? Wherever that is, bubble universe, I don't know, outside of space and time. He doesn't really give us these kinds of details, but somewhere else where you'd be safe, where you'd be in his presence and where you would be alive. He says, I am not the God of the dead. I am the God of the living. I am Abraham's God right now. He is with me. Yes, he died on this earth. Yes, his ashes are still buried somewhere in the Middle East. Um, But he is with me. And a day will come when I am going to download that software into new hardware, restored hardware, repaired, refurbished hardware, if you will. Um, Paul says that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Jesus says to the thief next to him on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. You will be uploaded and you will be saved. And a day will come when you will be downloaded into a resurrected body and you're going to live forever. Can the soul, can the personhood continue separated from the body, separated from the brain? It seems scientifically impossible based on the scientific materialist assumptions of the 20th century, but, but how little we actually know about the interface between mind and brain. In the medical literature, there are increasing accounts that fail to fit neatly with the prevailing assumption that the mind or soul is merely a working of the brain in the way that pumping of blood is the working of the heart. It's something that my own family experienced a few years ago when my grandmother passed away. I've got a photo of her, a really old photo. It's not a great photo, but it's what we got. Um, Dorothy Johnson on the right and her husband, my grandpa Delzi, on the left, um, Dorothy, uh, Grandma, um, she was a Christian. She loved me. She was the one who prayed me into the kingdom when I was unchurched and far from God. But uh, she passed away a few years ago, and it was interesting as she she, uh, declined, she went plum crazy. I mean, she went bonkers. Like, we are talking way beyond dementia. She was seeing things. She was, I don't know if it's Lewy body dementia or something else, but she was crazy. And then she began to forget everything. And eventually, by the time she was in a nursing home in her final days, she wasn't interacting. She wasn't recognizing anybody. Uh, It was a long, slow decline. And then Uh, One day, my Aunt Sandy was visiting her in the nursing home. She was really just a vegetable, I think, at that point. Uh, And then one day, she visited her, and she walked in, and my grandma is sitting up in bed smiling. She says, Sandy, how are you? And, And asking all of these questions and interacting and knowing everybody and knowing everything. And it's like, Grandma was suddenly 100% back and Sandy sat there and talked to her for 15, 20 minutes. And then she, she wanted to go make some phone calls and go pick up some food and let everybody know. And so she went out to the parking lot. And as she reached her car, her phone rang. And it was the nursing station saying, you need to come back in. And before my aunt had gotten to the car, my grandmother had passed away. And my aunt says it's as if God was healing her. 
right before her eyes. Um, I got curious about this and started Googling it up one side and down the other and uh, realized that since 2009, researchers have been compiling similar accounts of a condition that now goes by the name terminal lucidity. Professor Alexander uh, Bethiani, who teaches cognitive science at the University of Vienna, is currently running a large-scale study on the phenomena. It's the first of its kind. And in one account from his database, an elderly woman with Alzheimer's never speaks. She no longer recognizes her loved ones when they come to visit and shows no expression, no emotion. By the looks of her, she is a human vegetable. She's been this way for over a year. Her brain's cerebral cortex and hippocampus, which are are necessary for memory and thought and language and normal consciousness. They've severely shrunken. Her brain bears little resemblance to a healthy one, and yet something happens. As reported by both the nursing staff of her care unit and by her family members, unexpectedly she sits up in bed. She swings her feet around. She stands up. Her face is no longer blank. It's no longer motionless. She walks over to a telephone. How does she know what a telephone is? She dials a phone number from memory, but how does she still have memory? She calls up her daughter. She uses her name. She tells her how glad she is to speak with her. Honey, I just want to thank you for everything. You've been so wonderful. And then she has a phone conversation with her grandchildren. She exchanges kindnesses and warmth. I love you so much. I will always love you. Please don't forget me. You know I love you. And she says farewell. She goes back to her bed and she dies. Terminal Lucidity, a review and case collection by Michael Nam and Bruce Grayson, Division of Perceptual Studies, Department of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences, University of Virginia, Archives of Gerontology and Geriatrics, Volume 30, 2011. It's where I get all my illustrations. Uh, <laughs> Morrison Perry, 1990, reported the case of a five-year-old boy who had been in a coma for three weeks, dying from a malignant brain tumor, during which time he was almost constantly surrounded by his family members. And, and finally, on the advice of their pastor, the family told the comatose child that they would miss him, but that he had their permission to go ahead and die. And suddenly and unexpectedly, the boy opened his eyes. He regained consciousness. He thanked the family for letting him go. He told them that he would be dying soon, and the next day he died. Haig, 2007, reports the case of a young man dying of lung cancer that had spread metastasized to his brain. Toward the end of this young man's life, a brain scan showed that there was very little brain tissue left, that the metastasized tumors had not simply pushed aside the brain tissue, but they had actually destroyed it and replaced it. And instead of a brain, he had a mass of cancerous tumor. In the days before his death, he, of course, had lost all ability to speak and ability to move, according to a nurse and his wife. However, one hour before he died, he woke up, He said goodbye to his family. He spoke with them for about five minutes and then lost consciousness again and died. This man had very little brain left. Yet one hour before he died, with very little brain tissue, while he was in the midst of the dying process, he somehow functioned and communicated completely normally with the people he loved for five minutes. It's as if his mind or soul 
was separating from his body, as if the mind had been there all along and the brain was what was defective. The brain was the tool of the mind and functioning with a defective tool, the the soul, the mind was not free. The consciousness was not free because it was dealing with corrupt hardware. But as it began to be uploaded from that defective hardware, you could see he was alive and his consciousness was there and his mind was there and his soul was there and it blows away the entire concept of 20th century thought about the mind, that it exists separate from the brain, separate, independent from the soul, and death is merely a temporary separation of the soul from the brain. I could go through so many more, more instances uh, of, uh, but I'll save them for, for another light, uh, another another day. Um, but friends, in the words that Shakespeare gave to Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Jesus says the power of God and the love of God is able to make you live beyond and is eager and willing to not let death hold on to you. He points finally to the power of the resurrection. To have our software uploaded to the creator's mainframe is one thing. It means that we continue even after the hardware of our body and brain have broken down. But here Jesus is promising something more. He says a day comes when the hardware itself will be rebuilt, repaired, refurbished, made new. The experience that he speaks of is the coming resurrection Heaven is not the biblical horizon. Heaven is temporary. Heaven is where we go when we die if we belong to the Lord. But heaven is not where we end up because the Bible promises that even our bodies will be raised to life and restored to our souls once again when the Lord returns to make the entire cosmos right and to fulfill all of his promises. The power of God is going to heal the creation. And this is where you get to the weird part of that question Jesus was asked. Because remember, Jesus was asked, okay, at the resurrection, this guy, I mean, this, this, this woman, she had seven husbands, seven brothers. She married one. He died. She married the next. He died. She married the next. He died. She married the next. He died. What's the obvious question that anybody would, would ask? Why did number six and number seven marry her? I mean... Obviously, she's a poisoner. But that's not the question that was obvious to them. To them, the question that was obvious is if there is a resurrection, who's she going to be married to? And Jesus responds by saying, there's not going to be any marriage at the resurrection. We're going to be more like the angels on that point at least. Nobody's going to have a husband. Nobody's going to have a wife. And for some of you, that is the promise of God, and you want to go home and put it on your refrigerator. And for some of you, that has the smell of death. Uh, So the question is, okay, what do we do with this? Jesus is explaining the coming age, saying there's no marriage. Uh, I dare to think that at the resurrection, we will not have less love than we have today. 
And you are not going to have less intimacy than you have today or less closeness. Indeed, all those things that we look for in a good and healthy marriage are the things we're going to have in all of our relationships. Think security and absolute acceptance to be known and to be loved, to be pursued, to be protected, to have closeness in all of your relationships, to have vulnerability and trust and delight and companionship in every friendship. No more betrayals, no more being left out or left behind, no more broken promises. It'll make the most perfect marriage pale by comparison. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think about. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing which excludes chocolate. We're in the same position. We know about the sexual life. We know, except in, we do not know except in glimpses, that other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Heaven, Jonathan Edwards said, is a kingdom of love. The God who made the galaxies, who created time and space, is a God of love. It doesn't say he's a God of a lot of things. But it's clear that he's a God of love and that God is love. And this God is the one who gave up his son for you, out of love for you. A God of love who did everything necessary to rescue you from death. The Apostle Paul says that I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the thought of man what God has prepared for those who believe in him. The first thought. When you close your eyes and give up consciousness for the last time, the first thought when you open your eyes again is going to be, Oh, my God. What awaits us is far better than what we leave behind. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live forever, for I will raise him up at the last day. It's the promise of God. The future is before you, and it only gets better, friends. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the resurrection, for we do doubt your power. And yet I know, Lord, that what your son says, these are the words of truth. And so we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love and your life. We thank you for the elements on this table, for this cup, for this bread. We consecrate them to you now in the name of Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel to us in this meal, we pray. Lord, for your grace and your promise is all we have. A trillion years from now, we will have life because what you say you have done for us is true. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Friends, the Lord be with you. And also with you. And lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. If you, friends, are ready to come to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in this meal, with faith that he is your Savior and the Lord, and with a repentance that comes to him with empty hands, saying, Lord, you're going to have to guide me because apart from you, I'm just going to make a mess of this. If you're ready to come with love, choosing to love your fellow Christian as Christ has loved you, 
uh, then you don't have to be a member of this church or this denomination. If you're a member in good standing of some other church where Jesus is honored as Lord and a Savior, then this is for you. For it was on that night in which he was betrayed that the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take this and eat. This is my body. It is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Beloved, in the same way, after supper, Christ took the cup also, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Our faith is feeble, we confess. We faintly trust thy word. But will you pity us nonetheless? Be that far from you, Lord. Hear us, Emmanuel. Here we are. We long to feel your touch. Deeply wounded souls, to thee we fly. O Savior, hear our cry. Before you is the assurance that he hears your cry that he is ready for you to flee to him, that he is ready to heal you and communicate with you. Beloved, great is the mystery of faith. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Beloved, come and receive. Body of Christ for you. Christ's body for you. The body of Christ for you, my beloved. Christ's body broken for you, carry. The body of Christ broken for you. Christ's body for you. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body broken for you. The body of Christ. Christ's body for you. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body for you. The body of Christ for you, Dawn. The body of Christ broken for you. Christ's body for you, Jean. The body of Christ for you, Mark. Christ's body for you, Joy. The body of Christ broken for you. Christ's body for you. The body of Christ for you, Sonny. Christ's body for you, Michael. The body of Christ broken for you. Christ's body for you. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body broken for you. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body for you. The body of Christ. Christ's body for you. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body broken for you. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body broken for you. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body for you. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body broken for you. Christ's body for you. The body of Christ broken for you. Christ's body for you. 
Christ's body broken for you. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body broken for you. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body for you. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body for you. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body broken for you. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body broken for you. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body for you. The body of Christ broken for you, Keith. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body broken for you, my son. The body of Christ for you. Christ's body for you, Jim. The body of Christ broken for you. Christ's body broken for you.